Welcome to the Crossing Church Podcast. This week, special guest Dr. Mark David Hall delivers a special July 4th message titled, Did America Have a Christian Founding? We hope you enjoy this weekend's message. Well, thank you very much. It's been my pleasure to worship with you all last night and this morning. The, the worship was, shall we say, energetic and much appreciated. Thank you all. So um, when the pastors prayed for me, they were kind enough to call me Pastor Mark David Hall, but I'm not a pastor, I'm just a professor. And so I come before you in a church service with a little bit of fear and trepidation. So I'll just open this up with prayer, if I may, if you'll join me, please. Thank you, Lord God Almighty, for this day, this day in which we celebrate American independence. Lord, I pray that my message would be edifying. Most of all, Lord, I pray that it would not bring glory to the United States of America or to America's founders, but to you, because it's to you we owe all good things and all our thanks. Amen. All right, so oftentimes when I give this talk, it's a bit more academic, and I'll try to leave some of that to the side and focus a bit more on scripture and even a, a couple of applications. Um, let me do state, though, and this might not be evident to this church, because I know you bring in good people like David Barton and others to talk about these issues, but if you were to just go to your local library and pick up a book on religion and the American founding, you will find book after book written by prominent college professors, by prominent journalists, that make this argument. They say America's founders were deists. That is, they were barely Christians. They barely believed in God. And they created a, a godless constitution. And they desired to strictly separate church and state. They wanted a wall of separation between church and state. These books are just literally everywhere. And so what I'm arguing is a bit countercultural. I'm attempting to bring a corrective to this line of, that's actually very common. And so I want to talk a little bit about the question, did America have a Christian founding? And I want to answer that with a resounding yes. And, and then we'll talk about some implications of this and some applications of this. Let me begin, though, with a few definitional issues. What would we mean by a founding, a Christian founding? What would make a founding Christian? Well, let me suggest a couple of possibilities before landing on one that I think is probably the best. We could mean simply that Americans in the late 18th century, Americans of European descent, were Christians. If that's what we mean, then America indisputably had a Christian founding. Almost 100% of Americans of European descent were Christian. In fact, about 98% were Protestants, 2% were Roman Catholics, and you had maybe 2,000 Jews in four or five American cities. So overwhelmingly a Christian people. That's not a very interesting finding, though, and I'll explain why in a second. I think it'd be far more interesting to argue that most Americans were Orthodox Christians, Bible-believing Christians. Now, it's because of the many claims that most of America's founders were deists, or that is barely Christian, let me say there is no evidence to support this whatsoever. That's a myth that I would like to think I decimate in my little book, Did America Have a Christian Founding? It's a lot harder, though, to show that they were all Orthodox Christians because we simply lack records. We might know that a founder attended church, that he was a deacon or an elder or something to this effect, but it's hard to know what goes on in the interior of a person's mind, especially if they don't leave a rich documentary um, record. And so I'm not going to make either of these claims here. Let me suggest that even if I could prove um, that most of America's founders were Orthodox Christians, it is a case that sometimes Orthodox Christians are influenced by profoundly unchristian ideas. And so I, I think there's a far more profitable way to think about the question. 
I, I might also mean as well that America had a Christian founding because America's founders all acted as Orthodox Christians. And here, believe it or not, some Christian college professors like to knock on the founders and say, well, look, some of them didn't join churches. Some of them didn't take communion when it was offered. Some of them did really bad things, like having an extramarital affair. I think we all know Alexander Hamilton um, had an extramarital affair. But let me suggest that I think this, this orthopraxy really misses the boat. Um, in, in some places, um, for historical reasons, it was very, very hard to become a member of certain churches in the late 18th century. Some Americans didn't take communion because they had such a high view of it and they thought they were unworthy. And let me concede, of course, having an extramarital affair is a very bad thing to do, but it doesn't mean that even Alexander Hamilton might have been influenced by Christian ideas when he contributed to crafting the Constitution and served as Secretary of State. And so really it's this last idea. By a Christian founding, I mean America's founders were influenced, profoundly influenced by Christian ideas. They drew from the Bible, they drew from Christian theology when they broke from Great Britain and created the U.S. Constitution. So that's what, I, that's what I mean by Christian. Let me do explore for just a minute what I mean by founding. Now, I've already suggested that, you know, probably naturally thinking about things in the late 18th century, and yet one could argue that America was founded with its earliest colonial settlements. Now, if this is what we mean by a Christian founding, well, by the founding, then I think you can make a very strong case that from north to south, America's early colonial leaders were motivated by their Christian faith and the Bible. I'm going to just focus on the Puritans, the pilgrims and the Puritans in New England, uh, because it shines some light on ways in which Christian civic leaders in the past have used the Bible, I think, in very profitable ways when crafting legislation. So the, the pilgrims and the Puritans who followed them were absolutely committed to creating laws and constitutions based on the Word of God. Let me just read um, a declaration from the Connecticut General Court from this era. Listen to them, so I'm quoting this. We have endeavored not only to ground our capital laws upon the word of God, but also all other laws upon the justice and equity held forth in that word, which is the most perfect rule. So they're looking to the word of God, this most perfect rule, when crafting legislation. Now, what are some of the implications of this? I'm going to just give you two, although I could keep going down this path quite a bit. In England at the time, someone could be put to death for circumstantial evidence. That is, no one saw them do the crime, just circumstantial evidence is found that suggests they did that. The Puritans, looking to passages like Deuteronomy 19.15, said, no, no, no. If we're going to put someone to death, there has to be two witnesses. This is a clear Old Testament idea that the Puritans had baked into New England law. So there, you can bring circumstantial evidence if you're having a trial, but you also have to have two witnesses. And this is a notion that eventually made it into the U.S. Constitution as well. Um, similarly, in England, something like a third of all criminals were sentenced to death. You could be sentenced to death for taking a, a deer in the king's forest, right? Kind of Robin Hood style. You could be sentenced to death for stealing a tiny amount of money, a mere shilling. You could be sentenced to death. When the Puritans wrote criminal statutes regarding theft, they looked to passages like Exodus 22.4, which says if you steal something, you have to return it double. So restitution, rather than death, is a punishment for crime. So the Puritans are putting far fewer people to death in New England than were being put to death over in Old England. 
All right, I'm gonna quote from one of my favorite professors. In spite of his name, we actually aren't related. A fellow named David D. Hall of Harvard Divinity School um, observes in his magisterial book, The Puritans, that these individuals added a cluster of rights and privileges for plaintiffs and defendants. Out went torture, high fees and long delays. Overnight, the cruelties of English law and the abuses of power and money at sanction gave way to the values of peace, mutual love, in equality. So looking to the Bible, these um, early colonists revised laws in ways that were very, very salutary and that continued to impact uh, American law well into the 18th century, to the 19th, and to the present day in important ways. All right, so this is July 4th, and when we think about when America was founded, we pretty naturally think about July 4th, 1776, right? The Declaration of Independence. So let me jump to the Declaration of Independence and, and this break from Great Britain. And let me concede right away that there's maybe a problem here. I'm sure you're all familiar with Romans 13, 1 and 2, which says, let every soul be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. And the authorities that exist are appointed by God. Romans 1 and 2, if this is well you read it, it sounds like revolution is not permitted, right? Christians ought not to overthrow governments. And in fact, the church interpreted Romans 13 in this way for about 1,200 years. Almost every Christian who wrote about this would say, look, if the government tells you to bow down and worship Baal, you don't do it, but then you take the consequences, sort of like Daniel did, sort of like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego did. Um, you don't obey an un ungodly command, but you take the consequences. You don't get to pick up arms and overthrow the tyrant. Fortunately, though, in the American context, Americans, as we already talked about, were a very Protestant people. And in fact, they were very Calvinist people. About 50 to 75% were Calvinists. Now, this is important because the Protestant reformers and especially the Calvinist reformers read on in Romans 13. They read on to verses 3 and 4. Verses 3 and 4 say, governments punish those who do evil and they reward those who do good. Well, this raises a question. What if you have a quote-unquote government that is routinely punishing good people and routinely rewarding evil people? Maybe this is not the sort of government that Romans 13 is sanctioning, that it's commanding Christians to obey. So John Calvin was probably the most conservative of the reformers in this respect. He said, look, if you have a tyrant, the inferior magistrates could resist that person actively, even with the force of arms. But even as he was writing this, John Knox up in Scotland said, no, 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 the people themselves may, act, may, may actively resist a tyrant. They may pick up arms to overthrow the tyrant. And this Protestant tradition, which had such a great impact in the United States of America, was only expanded upon by later reformed thinkers, the author of Wendy K. Contras John Ponet, Rutherford, and so forth. So that by the time you got to the Stamp Act crisis, let's say in 1765, the American population was utterly convinced that the Bible not only sanctioned, not only permitted, but sometimes required resisting unjust authority. Um, this, was, this connection was recognized. It was almost impossible to find a Protestant clergyman with the exception of a few Anglicans. Anglicans, of course, Anglican Church, the Church of England. The king is the head of the Church of England. But when you turn to your Presbyterians, your Congregationalists, your Baptists, they are almost uniformly on the side of the patriots. And this was noticed by loyalists such as Peter Oliver, who railed against, quote, the dissenting clergy who took so active a part in the rebellion. 
dissenting clergy here means non-Anglican clergy. Again, you're Presbyterians, Baptists, and so forth. Um, King George himself actually referred to the War for American Independence as a Presbyterian rebellion. Let me make the obvious point, too. This is glossed over by far too many students of this era. The Declaration of Independence, and I hope um, some of you in your celebrations this afternoon will take the time to read at least the first two paragraphs. The second paragraph contains one of the best sentences in all of American political writings, right? We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they're endowed by the Creator with certain unalienable rights, among which are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. This is a theological proposition. Now you might object, wasn't this penned by Thomas Jefferson? Thomas Jefferson did in fact pen the draft, but the Committee of Five then revised it. Congress then revised it further. And to understand a document like this, I think we can't just look at Thomas Jefferson. We have to look at the 55 plus men who ultimately approved this. Jefferson was something of a deist. He believed in a vague creator God who was out there, but almost everyone else in the Continental Congress understood God to be the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, a God who was most certainly involved in human affairs. All right, so I think you can, at a bare minimum, make an excellent argument that the patriots had good biblical reasons for resisting what they perceived to be acts of tyranny. Let me point out, though, I, I mentioned it just in passing, this this debate, this conflict really began with the Stamp Act crisis of 1765. It continued for nine years before shots were expired. And this is exactly the way Christians must think about resisting tyranny. We don't just pick up our guns and start shooting people the, the, the minute the government does something we don't like, right? There's lots of other avenues. And the patriots took it. They petitioned parliament. They petitioned the king. They petitioned the English people. They boycotted. They did all sorts of nonviolent things until eventually when the British sent troops in an offensive manner to Lexington and Concord, um, there was active resistance and shots were ex exchanged and the war for American independence became a hot war. All right, well, let me turn then to something that might be a little bit more difficult for my position, the U.S. Constitution. So we're jumping from 1776 to 1787, 1789. Um, prominent historians and political scientists have called the Constitution a godless document because the deity really isn't mentioned in the U.S. Constitution, right? Not to get to the dateline in the year of our Lord, 17. 87. Um, there's none of this great rhetoric or language. I don't mean rhetoric as if it's in a non-important sense. Um, the Declaration is full of it, right? Uh, the Declaration speaks of the Creator, nature's God, providence, all very common ways to refer to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in that era. The Constitution is relatively silent about the deity. So what is going on here? There is a hint that um, Congress won't do business on, on, the, on, on the Sabbath, on the Christian Sabbath, on Sunday. A pocket veto takes effect 10 days after Congress passes legislation, Sunday's exempted. Um, but still, you could see where Kramnik and Moore have some evidence here. Let me suggest that counting references to God in a particular document is not a very useful way to judge whether it's a Christian document or not. In fact, I think it's far more important to look at the influence. What influenced the authors of this document and the ratifiers of the document? Um, let me first point out, this will get a little wonky, but I think it's just such a great study, I, ca I can't not mention it. Um, a political scientist, Donald Lutz, did a content analysis of a great deal of political 
political writings in the American founding era. And he looked at who were the founders siding as authorities in the hopes of convincing their fellow citizens to embrace this idea or that idea. And he went through and he counted up all these references. And what he found is that the founders cited the Bible 34% of the time. 34% of all references were to the Bible. Only 22% were to Enlightenment authors. And this takes all the Enlightenment authors together, right? So John Locke, Montesquieu, Adam Smith, Vicari, 22%, the Bible, 34%. And yeah, Donald Lutz is a very good guy, but he profoundly undercounts references to the Bible. He does so for two reasons. First of all, he excluded political sermons um, from his study that don't also cite secular authors, secular authorities. If you had included, if he had included those political sermons, there would be far more citations to the Bible. Second of all, he literally is looking for citations. So George Washington, for instance, referenced Micah 4.4 alone more than 40 times. And yet, to my knowledge, he never, after he referenced it, put in the little parenthetical citation, Micah 4.4. And I'll give you an example of this a bit later. But if he had counted these references or allusions to the Bible, the numbers would just be astronomical. Now, this is exactly what you would expect of a Protestant people, right? Protestants are people of the book. They look to the Bible. We look to the Bible as their main authority. All right, well, let me just give you four ways in which I think the founders' Christian ideas profoundly influenced the creation of the U.S. Constitution. First of all, their faith taught them that men are sinful. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And even Christians continue to struggle with the old man within. Well, we all agree with that, I trust, but what are the political implications of it? America's founders absolutely agreed with Lord Acton that power tends to corrupt, absolute power corrupts absolutely. And therefore, they designed a constitutional order characterized by the separation of powers, checks and balances, federalism. They wanted to avoid concentrated power in a big way. This was one of their top priorities. Federalist and anti-federalist alike agreed on this point. By way of contrast, Enlightenment thinkers in Europe were going in exactly the opposite direction. They tended to argue that humans are basically good, that if we could just fix the educational system or the economic system, we could arrive at some sort of utopia. And not surprisingly, they wanted a government of experts, a very strong central government run by the experts. Why let regular people have a say in the rules that govern them? Let's get folks with PhDs from Harvard and Yale to use their, our contemporary understanding of elites to make all the rules for us. America's founders would have nothing to do with that. And this is one of the reasons, I think, that the United States of America had a very successful transition of power, moving from the, being a part of the British Commonwealth to being an independent country, whereas France, of course, went through the, the bloodbath of the reign of terror. All right, secondly, America's founders were absolutely convinced that there were absolute standards of morality what they would oftentimes call the natural law. All human law must be based on this law. Let me just mention briefly James Wilson, that very important founder who signed the Declaration, signed the Constitution, early Supreme Court justice. He gave a series of law lectures, and when you read through these lectures, you could be excused for thinking and reading St. Thomas Aquinas. He makes distinctions like this. There are two types of law, divine law and human law. Of the divine law, there are four types the eternal law, the celestial law, 
natural moral laws, and natural physical laws. Human laws must be based on the moral law if they are to be legitimate. And unjust law is no law at all. And so this understanding that laws must be based on a moral foundation just, again, permeated the American founding. Um, the third point here, I think, relates to this in a very nice and important way as we celebrate liberty today. America's founders understood liberty and very different from many of us. Um, oftentimes, when I talk to my students, and they're very good students, I'll ask them to define liberty, and they'll say, oh, I, I, liberty is the ability to do whatever you want except for physically harm someone else, right? My liberty ends at the tip of your nose. This is very, very common. It's, it's, it's widespread in our culture, and yet America's founders would have said, what are you talking about? There is a difference between liberty and licentiousness. Liberty is a freedom to do what is right. Um, if you want to talk to the American founders, even the more progressive, quote-unquote progressive of them, and said, okay, is there a, a, a liberty? Are we free to burn the American flag as a form of political protest? Are we free to publish pornography? Are we free to curse in the public square? They would say, utterly not. All those things are licentiousness. They're license, and they ought not to be permitted. Um, you are free to do things that are, that are morally good, that are good in the eyes of God. A very important distinction. Law without liberty is tyranny. Liberty without law is licentiousness. And, and so I think we, we should keep this in mind as we think about what freedom means for us today. All right, finally, and the fourth thing, and I could keep going on, but the founders were absolutely committed to the central Christian proposition that all humans are made in the image of God, the imago dei. And from this flowed all sorts of very important ideas. Um, James Wilson, let me quote him again, in a U.S. Supreme Court opinion, actually writes this, man fearfully and wonderfully made is a workmanship of his all-perfect creator. This is Psalm 139.4. And yet Wilson, in this U.S. Supreme Court opinion, just simply paraphrases the verse. He doesn't provide the little parenthetical citation. So unless you know your Bible, you won't even know where this is coming from. So again, this is the sort of reference Donald Lutz would have missed, and yet it's a clear reference to Scripture. Now, how does this cash out? Well, Wilson tells us exactly how it cashes out in his law lectures. Innocent human life from the womb to its natural death must be protected as a matter of law. Do we have a right to commit suicide? Absolutely not, because it's not your life, it's God's life. Um, he he cashed this, this out in a way that I think obviously has implications for our culture today as we fight this culture of abortion. And I, I know the political fight is tiring. It's been going on for over 50 years, and yet we're making progress. And I think as, as believers, we, as, as, un, as uncomfortable as political involvement might make us sometimes, we have an obligation, we have a duty to fight to make sure all humans are respected from the womb to the natural death. The, the founders were, incidentally, um, beginning to apply this fundamental insight to the issue of slavery. And if we want to be critical of the founders, we can't criticize them for not immediately abolishing this horrible institution. But even so, we oftentimes miss the fact that eight states voluntarily abolished slavery or put it on the path to extinction between 1776 and 1804. The Northwest Ordinance prohibited the expansion of slavery into the territories. No founder defended slavery as a positive good 
everyone was convinced on it was on its way out, and it did remain along for longer than, around for longer than the founding generation thought it would for a variety of implications. But I just want to suggest here that there was an understanding among many founders that slavery is fundamentally incompatible with the fact that all humans are made in the image of God. Well, let me turn to a slightly separate set of issues, um, religious liberty and church-state relations. Now here, two very liberal justices, in the case of Everson versus the Board of Education, Wiley Rutledge and Hugo Black, um, actually made an originalist argument. They said we must interpret the First Amendment, religion clause, Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. We must interpret this constitutional provision in light of the founders' views. Well, so far, so good. Unfortunately, they made horrible historical arguments. They said, well, look, there's this letter from, the, from Thomas Jefferson, the Danbury Baptist, saying that the First Amendment, the Establishment Clause, builds a wall of separation between church and state. Well, let me suggest to you it does no such thing, and simply reading the Constitution would show you that, right? Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion. This is a one-way barrier. It restricts government, right? The national government, and then later by extension, the states. It in no way, shapes her, shape or form, restricts the ability of the church to speak into politics, whether it's the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. or your pastor speaking to political issues of the day, perfectly permissible as a matter of the First Amendment. And yet, if you buy this idea of a wall metaphor, it becomes more problematic, right? Because a wall is a bilateral barrier. Let me make, pretty briefly, um, far better historical arguments. First of all, um, let me suggest that America's founders were to a person profoundly committed to the idea that all individuals must have the ability to worship God according to the dictates of conscience and to act upon these, their, their religious convictions wherever possible. And they grounded this right on theological arguments. Let me quote from a very important document of the day. It's not as well known today. It should be better known. Uh, George Mason's draft of Article 16 of Virginia Declaration of Rights, it begins like this. That is religion or the duty which we owe to our divine and omnipotent creator and the manner of discharging it can be governed only by reason and conviction, not by force or violence. Therefore, all men should enjoy the fullest toleration in the exercise of religion. Let me point out, I'm sure you heard it, but just to emphasize it, this argument is grounded on a duty, the duty which we owe to our divine and omnipotent creator. Because we have a duty to worship God in spirit and truth, therefore we should be left free to do it. There's nothing like, well, religion isn't important, so just let people do whatever they want to do, or we're just tired of fighting over religion, so let's let anything go. This is a Christian argument in favor of religious liberty. And note, sometimes political progressives today are far too prone to talk about the freedom of worship. That is a very problematic idea. We have it, of course. Christians must be free to gather and worship God according to the dictates of conscience, as must Jews, as must Muslims, and others. But Worship suggests things that go on in a church, a mosque, or a synagogue. Note the Virginia Declaration of Rights protects the ability to exercise our faith, to go into the public square and act on our religious convictions whenever possible. Now, this was a good draft. I like the draft, but James Madison actually stood up in one of his first public acts, and he said, you know, I don't really like that language of toleration. That kind of puts, uh, suggests that the government's going to tolerate these people, put up with them for now, but later maybe they'll not tolerate them. 
Instead, he proposed language in effect saying that we have a natural right to religious liberty. The Virginia Convention agreed with, with Madison, and this eventually went into Article 16 of the Declaration of Rights. And this sort of language, of course, eventually got into the First Amendment to the U.S. Constitution. Congress shall make no law respecting the establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. And I can't emphasize that enough. We have the ability to go into the public square to act upon our religious convictions, to run our um, businesses according to our religious convictions. Religious liberty is a very broad concept, and Christians must fight for it, and we must fight for it for all citizens. Well, let me turn to more establishment clause type issues. Now, critics of my position might say, wait a minute, Hall, weren't states disestablishing churches? Weren't states getting rid of their established churches in the late 18th century, early 19th century? And they were, they absolutely were. But the question, the key question, the interesting question is why? To begin with, why would anyone ever support an established church? Well, there was a huge debate in Virginia about this subject, and advocates of the, the uh, state church made arguments like this. I kid you not, they made these sorts of arguments. They said, look, we want to make sure pastors are well paid. If they aren't well paid, the best and brightest young men might go off and become doctors or attorneys or something like that. So therefore, we need government subsidies of ministers. Well, that's an argument. You hear this sort of argument all the time with, say, public sector unions and whatnot today. Um, however, Christians, evangelical Christians, objected to this. One of my favorite petitions comes out of Westmoreland County, a group of evangelicals, who said this. They said, this plan to subsidize ministers, it goes against the spirit of the gospel. The holy author of our religion did not require state support. Responding specifically to this argument that we have to subsidize ministers, the state should subsidize ministers, they said that clergy should manifest to the world, and I'm quoting here, that they are inwardly moved by the Holy Ghost to take upon themselves as this office. They, they seek the good of mankind and not worldly interest. Let their doctrines be scriptural, their lives upright, then shall religion, if departed, speedily return, and deism be put to open shame, and its dreaded consequences removed. Do you see what they're saying there? We do not want ministers to be attracted to the ministry because they can make a lot of money. We want them to be moved by the Holy Ghost. Now, this makes a lot of sense to me. And please note, I'm not saying pastors ought not to be paid a fair wage. I'm just saying the government has no business being involved in subsidizing them. And with government subsidies, always, always comes government strings. The um, Virginia General Assembly used to dictate the church governance structure, the ecclesiastical structure of the Anglican Church in, North, North, in Virginia. Right? If the government's paying the tab, the government's going to demand control. Churches must be free of government control. So these folks, and America's founders recognize this, right? All right, well, let me turn to one last issue, um, religion in the public square. I'm sure you've heard a number of people making claims that the Establishment Clause requires the removal of World, one, or World War I era crosses um, from public land up in Maryland. In Florida, there's been an argument that a World War II era cross up in Pensacola has to be removed from public land because we have this wall 
of separation between church and state. This wall of separation should probably also keep men, uh, presidents from using religious language, from making religious arguments in the public square, from quoting the Bible and this sort of thing. Let me just suggest and argue that in no way, shape, or form can you arrive at this conclusion by looking at America's founders. I'm gonna to attempt to show this to you by looking at one of the more difficult of the founders, Thomas Jefferson. So Thomas Jefferson, we know from later correspondence, he is not an Orthodox Christian. He seems to have believed in a creator God, maybe in standards of morality, maybe in afterlife, but he specifically rejects doctrines such as the incarnation, the virgin birth, the atonement, so not an Orthodox Christian. But even Thomas Jefferson, who did want a greater degree of separation between church and state than most founders, certainly did not act as if there was a wall of separation between church and state. For instance, when he was revising Virginia statutes, among them was a statute saying when governors could appoint days of public fasting and humiliation or thanksgiving, and also a bill to punish disturbers of religious worship and Sabbath breakers. As a member of the Continental Congress, he was on a little committee to put together a national seal. And we'll, we'll see what this is in just a second. He proposed that the national seal be an image of Moses extending his hand over the seas, causing it to overwhelm Pharaoh. So a pretty explicitly biblical um, imagery, right? And his motto for the United States would have been rebellion to tyrants is obedience to God. Jefferson closed his second inaugural address by inviting his fellow Americans to join him in seeking, quote, the favor of that being in whose hands we are, who led our forefathers as Israel of old. And two days after he completed this letter to the Danbury Baptist, a letter that contains a line about the wall separation between church and state, he went to church services in the U.S. Capitol building where he heard John Leland, the great Baptist itinerant minister, preach a sermon. Leland himself was an opponent of religious establishments, and yet he saw no problem apparently with having church services in the U.S. Capitol building. Jefferson also made the War Department building and the Treasury Department building available for church services. Now, don't misunderstand what I'm saying about Jefferson. He wanted a greater degree of separation between church and state than almost any founder. But this kind of makes my point, right? He didn't act as if there was, in fact, a wall of separation between church and state. And when we turn to the rest of the founding generation, we see a very, very different picture. I'll illustrate just with this with just one example, although I give plenty of other examples in my book. This is probably my most famous from this era because of the coincidence. And it's another one of these coincidences. Literally one day after the House of Representatives finish, finishes the draft of what became the First Amendment, Ilias Boudinot, a delegate from New Jersey, later president of the American Bible Society, he said, and I'll paraphrase, he said, hey guys, things are going well. We should ask the president to issue a Thanksgiving Day proclamation. Adonis Burke of South Carolina said, oh, we can't do that. That's a European practice. We don't want to copy the Europeans. Roger Sherman, the old Puritan from Connecticut, got up and he said this, I'm going to quote from a newspaper account, he justified the practice of Thanksgiving on any single, single event. Not only is a laudable one in itself, but is warranted by a number of precedents in holy writ. For instance, a solemn thanksgiving and rejoicing which took place in the time of Solomon after the building of the temple was a case in point. This example he thought worthy of Christian imitation on the present occasion. Do you see what's going on here? He's appealing to the Bible. This is a biblical practice, not a European practice, and therefore it's appropriate for Americans to engage in this. 
Well, I'm pleased to report that the House agreed with Boudinot and Sherman. The Senate agreed with the House. They requested President George Washington issue a Thanksgiving Day proclamation. The president did not have to do so, but he issued this wonderful uh, proclamation in 1789. You can Google it, find it easily enough. I'll read just a, a small portion of it. The whole thing is worth reading at length. He said that it is a duty of nations to acknowledge the providence of Almighty God to obey his will and to be grateful for his benefits and to humbly implore his, implore his protection and favor. Um, he recommends this day of Thanksgiving. What would people do on this Thanksgiving? Well, obviously, they would unite in most humbly offering our prayers and supplication to the great Lord and ruler of nations and beseech him to pardon our national uh, and other transgressions. So this isn't just a rah-rah America sort of thing. It was, look, guys, we need to thank God for all the good things he's given us and beg him to forgive us for sins we've committed as a nation. These sorts of uh, proclamations were routinely issued by most presidents from this era. Jefferson's an exception for idiosyncratic reasons, and people continue to do it to the present day. So without exception, America's founders bought into what Jim Hudson of the Library of Congress has called the founder syllogism. Religion is necessary for morality. Morality is necessary for Republican government. They thought it entirely appropriate for governments to encourage religion in profitable ways. The only debate was what actually helps. What makes Christianity more pure? Do government subsidies help? No, they hurt. So therefore, we don't want government subsidies. Does the president of the United States encouraging people to pray, not requiring, encouraging them to pray help? Yes, it helps. Therefore, it's appropriate. There is no historical reason to believe that America's founders didn't want presidents to use religious language, to quote the Bible. Uh, they certainly didn't want religion to be scrubbed from the public squares. Crosses on public lands do not need to come down. All right, so by way of conclusion, um, let me say I think it's indisputably the case that America had a Christian founding, and this is good news for all Americans. Now, one could imagine, not, not so much in this congregation, but I, I give this talk at universities regularly, and you might think if there's a Jewish American or an Islamic American or an atheist American in the audience, they might get a little nervous at this point. Oh my goodness, does that mean America is just a country for, for Christians? Absolutely not. The ways in which America was founded um, based on Christian ideas provided a constitutional order that still benefits us all today, right? Limited government, separation of powers, checks and balances, a very robust understanding of religious liberty. America's founders, even though they were overwhelmingly Christian, understood that religious liberty must apply to non-Christians. So let me quote from one of my favorite letters from this era. George Washington wrote to the Hebrew congregation in Newport, Rhode Island. You remember what I said earlier, right? There's only about 2,000 Jews in America, and um, they are not a wealthy or important or numerous constituency. He did not have to cultivate them. Nonetheless, he wrote them this letter. He said that all citizens alike possess liberty and conscience and the immunities of citizenship. It is now no more that toleration is spoken of as if it was by the indulgence of one class of people that another enjoyed the exercise of their inherent natural rights. Note that juxtaposition again. We aren't talking about toleration anymore. We're talking about the natural right of all individuals to act according to the religious convictions. Now, of course, there might be limits to this. We're not going to allow human sacrifice and so forth. I'm paraphrasing him here. Listen to this conclusion. And if you know your Bible inside and out, you'll recognize a number of these phrases. This is of the same letter. 
May the children of the stock of Abraham who dwell in this land continue to merit and enjoy the goodwill of the other inhabitants, while everyone shall sit in safety under his own vine and fig tree, and there shall be none to make him afraid. That's a reference to Micah 4.4 I promised you earlier. May the Father of all mercy scatter light and darkness in our paths, and make us all in our several vocations useful here and in his own due time and way everlastingly happy. So there are eight separate allusions to Scripture in that very short paragraph I just read, none of which are followed by citation. So Donald Lutz missed all of them. And yet here's George Washington, whom some scholars say there's no evidence he ever read his Bible. Washington knew his Bible inside and out, and he used it all the time. Just secular scholars who are biblically illiterate miss this all the time. <laughs> it's true. I am sorry to call a spade a spade. All right, so um, by way of application, um, let me suggest that I think we should all be grateful. We should be grateful to God's providence who led to America breaking from Great Britain at a very auspicious time, I think, who led America's founders to draw from their Christian convictions to create a constitutional order that is not perfect, to be sure, but that has blessed many of us, many of us in so many ways. Um, let me suggest, again, I said this earlier, I'm, I'm a politics professor, so I, I, I can't help but emphasize this fact. I get tired of contemporary politics, just like I'm sure many of you do, but I think as Christians, we are obligated to continue to strive for justice in a merciful manner in the public square. Well, thank you all very much. Let me close us in prayer, and then we'll turn things over to a real pastor. Thank you, Lord God Almighty, for this wonderful church and for the wonderful work being done here. Thank you, Lord, that we live in the United States of America, which for all its problems is free. And we have been blessed in so many ways by being here, Lord. Um, Lord, help us to continue to strive for justice in the public square. In your name we pray. Amen. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed that message from Dr. Mark David Hall. You can subscribe to our YouTube channel at youtube.com slash crossingchurch, where you can watch all of our on-demand messages, watch our live broadcasts, and more. We hope to see you at noon prayer every Wednesday at 12 p.m. at our Tampa campus, and we can't wait to worship with you next weekend.